The following podcast is for healthcare professionals only. All views expressed belong to our speakers and don't necessarily reflect those of Nestle Health Science. Hello and welcome to Inside Medical Nutrition Podcast, a podcast powered by Nestle Health Science and hosted by me, Dr. Ian Patel. In today's episode, we'll be getting a dietitian's perspective on managing enteral nutrition patients in the community. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by an expert in the field, Jackie Loudon, a pediatric specialist dietitian. Welcome to the podcast, Jackie. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and learning much more about your experience in managing entering nutrition in the community. To begin with, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? What made you get into dietetics? I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do at school initially. And I started doing, in Scotland, we did all grades equivalent to all levels or GCSEs and nutrition. And I was hooked then and wanted to know more about it. And then found out there was this course and you could qualify as a dietitian. And so from then on, that's all I ever wanted to do. Oh, fantastic. So you trained as a dietitian and what was your first role in? I worked in adults as a, in those days of what we called as a basic grade, so the graduate entry level. And I worked at a very large teaching hospital. So it was a fantastic experience because I was just rotated round and round loads and loads of different specialities. Yeah. And in those days, you got thrown in at the deep end. It was just the you go, there's your wards, get on with it. But I learned loads, so that was really good. And then how did you transition into working with children? I think it was always at the back of my mind that was an area I wanted to work in. When I was a student, I didn't have a great, I didn't particularly enjoy my placement. I didn't enjoy it apart from the few days that I spent at Sick Children's Hospital in Glasgow. And those three days just stood out in my mind as being, wow, this is amazing. I really enjoyed this. And then when I started working, I got to one of the dietitians in the department. My first job was working paediatrics and I guess I just looked up to her hugely because her mm. wealth of knowledge and experience was just phenomenal. And I just thought, you know, that I really want to do this. I really want to be like her one day. So that's what then triggered my interest. Those two experiences triggered my interest and desire to become a paediatric dietitian. That's fantastic. So what's your current role at the moment? So I'm presently a clinical specialist in children with cystic fibrosis. Okay. And it's come full circle in a way because when I first got into paediatrics, my half of my first job, my role in paediatrics was in cystic fibrosis. I have done lots of other roles since then, but CF has always played a part in my jobs. I've done home enteral nutrition support and various other roles, but CF's always been there, part of my role. And then this opportunity came up to do it full time. So it was just amazing opportunity, really. Oh, wonderful. I'm definitely going to talk a lot more about your clinical expertise and what your caseload looks like, et cetera. But I'd love to know, in terms of your job at the moment, are you involved in any other projects or are you involved in governing bodies or committees, for example, for the British Dietetic Association? Yes, so I'm presently, I'm coming to the end of the term, but end of four years, but I'm presently co-chair of the CF Dietitians Group as part of the British Dietetic Association. I did it previously as a sole chair. That was many years ago. So it was my second turn at it. In the past, I previously sat on the European Dietitians Group as secretary. And I've also done various other chairs as part of the BDA in the past and other um, groups when I was doing other areas in paediatrics. For example, I was chair of the BDA paediatric group 
for a few years and I also chaired okay. PR committee a number of years ago as well. So okay. had a few roles within the BDA. No, fantastic. Vast experience. So you're very involved, it sounds like, in the development of current practice within paediatrics. Yeah, I would say that certainly in the past. Yeah, yeah. And now more so just in cystic fibrosis. Okay, that's great. So let's go back a little bit more to enteral nutrition. Broadly speaking, I'm interested to hear your views about the current trends in enteral nutrition patients. So for example, with past the pandemic now, so are you mm. seeing more since COVID, for example? I think it probably has it ramped up a little bit just because it's busier and more patients are able to come into hospital. Certainly from when I work, although I'm primarily CF, I also help to cover other areas. And part of one of the areas I helped cover is respiratory. And mm. I've noticed over the years, the huge increase in children with respiratory issues, particularly in those children who are on long-term ventilation okay. and who are cheap fed, that is a huge growth area. That's interesting. Um, when I think back to, thinking back to maybe 15, 20 years ago, there would maybe be three or four children in hospital, long-term ventilation units were being set up. And now in Leeds, we have a whole ward full of children on respiratory issues where maybe long-term ventilations and they're long-term fed. So it's a massive growth area. Yeah. And so if we talk about your entering nutrition caseload, what does that look like? One at the moment is children with cystic fibrosis. Um, however, because of the developments in CF, we have less tube feeding because of CF, because of the improvements in such things as newborn screening. So you're getting early in right at the start with improved nutrition, more aggressive approaches to nutrition. But we still have children with CF who have other conditions and other disabilities. And that is the area where maybe it's slightly more complicated with the CF children, those children who are maybe tube fed for reasons other than their cystic fibrosis. Okay. So now it's been a while since I did entering nutrition. So you're going to have to re-educate me. But what is the main criteria to choose for a feed for a patient or a child, whether they're starting off on a tube feed or, or a support? What do you have to go through? You'd have to look at, is the tube feed Essentially, is it a long-term feeding option or is it a short-term just to get them over an acute illness or is it more long-term? Are they no by mouth? Are they able to take in any oral diet or are they to be completely tube-fed? Because okay. that would determine maybe the amount of feed that you would give and also how you're going to give. Is it just a little top-up feed or is it more a complete feed with their total nutrition? And also maybe how they're being fed as well. Is it gastrostomy fed or is it jejunostomy fed? And also taking into consideration the parents' um, yeah. thoughts and concerns as well. Yeah. I want to talk about parents and carers and their involvement in all of this. But maybe if we've talked about how the children are being fed and perhaps why. But I guess what they're being fed is also really important. Mm. So can you perhaps talk me through some of the choices in terms of what we're feeding children with and what determines or dictates those choices? I mean, we have a, a range of feeds available these days. Again, when I think back to when I started working in paediatrics, you had a 
much smaller range. They would all be one calorie per mil, whole protein feeds. For some of the older kids, you would always have to depend on the adult range of feeds. You didn't have feed range to suit all ages and weights. We didn't have fiber-containing feeds. When that came out, that was a that was massive to have a feed that contained fiber. We didn't have the higher calorie feeds, all of yeah. the higher calorie feeds that we have now. And I, I can still remember the day when we had the lower calorie feeds came out for less than the one calorie per meal. For those children, particularly neurodisability children who didn't have huge calorie requirements. And I remember the days of having to use higher calorie feeds at such small volumes. We were then adding in powders for vitamins and minerals to make them nutritionally adequate. So we've got a huge range of whole protein feeds, but also fiber containing ones, lower calorie, higher calorie. We've got more whey feeds and we've got peptide based feeds now as well. So it's massively changed since I first started working in pediatrics. I can, no, I can only imagine. So talk me a little bit, talk me through a little bit about peptide feeds. So why do you usually start to use a peptide feed, for example? I mean, in the cases I've used it in, it's usually because the child has not tolerated a whole protein feed. So those okay. are the ones where I've used, whether it's that they've got chronic diarrhea or they're just unsettled. I've had children, particularly children with neurodisabilities, who just have been unsettled, um, just not right. The parents just say, I can't put my finger on it. They're just unsettled. They're maybe not sleeping properly at night and just seemed uncomfortable. So I've used it on a number of occasions for those children as well. Okay, that's interesting. And then high energy feeds, I guess, would be just the children that have got a high caloric intake, right? Higher caloric intake, but also those who maybe can't tolerate large volumes of feed. I mean, we okay. all work out the fluid requirements, but sometimes some of those children just can't tolerate those large quantities of volumes of feet if they particularly if they've got quite a lot of issues with reflux and yeah. so that's where you often the higher calorie feeds can be really useful when you've getting less volume in okay and then we're talking about tolerance so how do you monitor and observe whether a child is tolerating a feed well I mean, that's when you, it's like doing a diet history when you get a history from parents. So it's not just looking at growth, which obviously is really important. If they're tolerating the feed, are you getting the full amount in? Are they growing appropriately? Are, they, are you covering all of their nutritional requirements? But also mm. asking parents about their output. So are there any vomiting issues? Do they seem unsettled? Uh, and also bowel action as well. That's getting a, a good history of, of bowel actions. Yeah. And so I'm guessing that parents and carers are obviously very involved when it comes to the feed. I mean, do they have input into the decision of feeds or less so? I like to think that all dietitians would take parents' considerations into thought. And certainly I do as a dietitian, I will go and speak to parents and talk to them about obviously I will often have a feed in mind and I'll sit down and discuss it with them and show them and decide discuss why I think this might be the best feed and you'll get a mix of reactions some parents will just say well why are you asking me this I'll do whatever yeah. you, you, you're advising but other parents like to be completely involved and want to have more of a discussion and agreement and obviously you need to take into consideration the cultural backgrounds and any religious beliefs as well but prior to making these decisions 
Yeah. And so, I mean, all the conversation we've had is that very much looking at children both in hospital environments and also in community environments, or that does that kind of mm. change in terms of the pathway? I guess it would, maybe in the hospital it might be more acute, uh, whereas those in the community, it's obviously going to be of a, more of a long-term feeding option. So maybe on the acute side, you may only have one option of that feed on that particular time. Whereas maybe it was a long-term option, maybe you can always work out a different, a couple of different feed regimes to fit what suits the patient at that time. And also if it's long-term, you've also got the monitoring issues as well. So there may be in time whereby you need to make changes to the feed that you're using. That feed is not always going to be appropriate for the child in every scenario. And as they grow, then they will need different nutritional requirements and their condition may change, in which case you then have to rethink am I giving this child this, the best feed for their nutritional needs now? Yeah, and I'm also assuming that sometimes perhaps you would use a combination of different types of feeds. How would that work in practice? Yes, and again, I think a lot of that comes down to having discussions with parents, particularly the children maybe who are long-term fed. A lot of parents there will have their own views on what feeds they like particularly these days as well where parents are maybe on places such as Facebook or Twitter they may be discussing with other parents of like-minded children what feeds mm. are you using what do you think of this has this worked for your child so parents are much more educated these days yeah and maybe have voice more opinions and ask more questions which is it's a good thing. It's a good to have open dialogue and discuss with parents because if they're on board with it, then it's more likely to work rather than no. trying to push what feed you think is best on with them. No, absolutely. Now, I want us want you to take us on some on a journey of some of the reflections from your patient cases, if you may. So, for example, we've talked about the impact of and uh, the importance of getting parents involved. But I'm sure that also sometimes poses challenges, perhaps, if the parent is set on having one type of feed in their mind. And how do you manage that? I think that is quite difficult. And I guess we could, as dietitians, use our skills around behaviour change management and looking at things like, I mean, you don't want to be coercive, but I think it's more about maybe motivational skills, working with parents and trying to maybe encourage them to have an open discussion and trying to, again, influence their decisions, but influence in a positive way so that you're trying to put the best, you're obviously trying to put their child's best interests at heart, but you also have to sometimes exert your experience and your expertise and knowledge as a health professional as to why you might think this particular feed might be the best option. Yeah, no. And are there any other challenges when you're starting a new nutritional protocol? I think it's maybe any preconceived ideas as well. Again, parents may have been fixated on a feed that they think it, this feed has always worked in the past. This is the way I want to go. Whereas I actually think, well, match. I think there's another feed out there. And as health professionals, as dietitians, we obviously have to keep up to date with what new feeds are available and what's out there. And I think that's really important then that we can then say to parents, well, actually, there's a new feed out there in the market. I think this one might be a better option for your child at this period in time. So it's making sure that you're well versed and knowledgeable of what's out there so you can then educate the parents and say, well, 
we don't have to stick with the speed. There are other options available now. No, that's a really good tip. And I'm guessing many of our listeners will be dietitians who are wanting the practical insight into perhaps some of the tools or resources that you would recommend that they tap into. Do you have any of those to share? I often share some of my previous experience and knowledge of working. Obviously, you don't give any details, but I'll say, look, I've used this feed before. This is the circumstances in which I use the feed, and this is how how it improved the outcome. And I think it's very similar to your child in the situation. And I think this is something that we can try. I also put it to parents and say, look, a lot of this can be trial and error. I'm not saying that there's a wrong feed or right feed. Sometimes it's, there's a more appropriate feed and sometimes that might not work. But until we give it a go, until we try it, then we won't know. And I think sometimes it's worth trying with something different. If that doesn't work, then we can think again and we can have another chat. But I use my previous, a lot of the time, I do use my previous experience and knowledge of what's worked before as to how we can take things forward. No, understandably, and I guess as any young paediatric dietitian out there or just needing another sounding board, perhaps being involved in something like a specialist paediatric group might be really useful because you could share perhaps some of the more complex case studies and get dietitians who have more expertise like yourself to input into that as well. Definitely, yeah, yeah. And again, in the past, what I've also done, if you're a dietitian working out there and you're within a team of paediatric dietitians, I have gone up in the past with a junior colleague who said, look, I can't get these parents to listen to me. Could you come with me and discuss with these parents why we think this feed might be the better option? And I have done that in the past as well, gone and given the other dietitians some support. And the parents sometimes feel a little bit maybe, okay, so that's another dietitian who's come to see us. And she said the same thing. It's like getting a second opinion. So sometimes that can be really reassuring for the parents as well. No, that's a good tip. If we go back to some of the challenges we were talking about before, Jackie, what are the, I suppose, challenges for the child in terms of the impact on daily or physical routines if they are fed entrally? I think sometimes as health professionals, what we forget is that it's not just the feeding that this family have to do with this child. Very often these children are unable to get themselves out of, up and washed and dressed. They've got a lot of other care needs going on, other medications that need to be administered. So it's maybe trying to look at, you've got to look at their whole daily routine. Sometimes mm-hmm. when, I th- when I sit down with parents, I don't just say, right, we're going to do feeds at, these are the day- daytime bowls feeds we're going to do, this is the rate we're going to run at, these are the times we're going to do, and then we're going to set up an override feed. I always say to parents, right, what's your routine with your child when do you get up in the morning what time do you go to bed at what other things have to be given at a certain time during the day and let's see if we can work the feed regime in and around this would it suit you better to give more bolus feeds in the day and less overnight or would you rather have a longer overnight feed and smaller bolus feeds in the day and what time does the child go to school because often you have to liaise with the schedule, a lot of liaising with the special schools as well, and the nurses there and the teachers, figuring out times of feeds, when can you feed the child, how much. Yeah. Sometimes parents say, well, we can't give the feed too close to them getting on the school bus because they're sick. Um, and then I have to time it right when they get home from school. So it really is a lot of liaising with parents about the practicalities of the feed regime. No, totally. And I guess, I mean, who, I guess if we go right back to the beginning in terms of making the referrals, who makes the referrals 
And then, as you've mentioned, a big part of this is making sure you're part of this multidisciplinary team and you're constantly doing the liaising to make sure that you're minimizing, I suppose, the impact of the complications or how laborious this whole process is for the parents or the carers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we get we get referrals within the hospital when the child is in and some being in a large teaching ch- children's hospital, then it depends on whether the child is under our full care. If they're under, say, the CF team or the respiratory team, then we will carry on with their care. If, however, there may be as community pediatrician or community pediatric dietitian, such as maybe children with learning difficulties or neurodisability who might have a whole community team, we will then refer them on to their local dietitian as well. And of course, there you've got a liaison, a lot of liaison there with community dietitians as well about the home regime. Okay. And so in terms of follow-up then, how does that work in practice with yourself or once you hand it to the dietitian, is it then to the, over to the community dietitian to do the follow-ups? With, with my group of children with cystic fibrosis, we keep hold of them. But I obviously have to liaise with the local dietitian community because if they're out of our area, I have to liaise with them about the ordering of the feed and the equipment. With a lot of the respiratory patients, if they're within Leeds, then the hospital dietitian keeps hold of them. But if they're out of Leeds, then they'll be referred on to the local dietitian in that area. So again, there's a lot of liaison there. And equally, if the child comes back into hospital, as well as liaising with the family, we also liaise with the community dietitian to find out when was the last time you saw them, there was any changes to the feed regime. And likewise, if there are any changes that have to be made made during the hospital stay, then we liaise with their local dietitian as well. Okay. And would the follow-ups be done remotely or would they be done virtually now, I suppose, with the changes with COVID? Um, it depends. I think that in paediatrics, we tend to have a bit of both. So we do a bit of remote and telephone call, video call, but it's always good to see our patients face-to-face as well so that we can get growth measurements done. So in paediatrics, we've got a bit of a hybrid method going on where we do, we keep into both methods now. Okay. Jackie, what I'd love is some practical case studies because I know our listeners really value that. So if we're looking at the choice of feed, can you talk me through some case studies perhaps you've had where you're deciding what type of feed to actually give a child okay there is one in particular that I can think of on my present caseload she's a young girl who as well as CF she's also got another neurological condition she can eat small amounts of food but her main nutrition is from her gastrostomy feed and so we do a regular tube feeds during the day, bolus feeds. She was on a, a sort of high calorie, whole protein standard feed. And actually in this case, we were actually using the supplements because they were a good size. Sometimes I don't use the actual tube feeds. Sometimes I use the supplements to do a bolus feed because they're handy in a handy carton, the right amount. So she would just be packed off to school with them. And she'd had an episode of diarrhea and vomiting. So the parents had temporarily used a soy feed to replace this obviously has a lot less calories in it than her her calorie one but this had been going on for a bit too long and the parents kept trying to get her back to her old feed and the diary and vomiting would come back and they'd go back to the soy feed and 
I had a feeling that maybe this just wasn't the reason that they kept saying it was a gastro bug that she'd picked up at school. But I felt that it was her condition that was deteriorating. And like a lot of the neurodisability children, I often find peptide feeds quite useful. And so I tried to say to the parents, don't think this is the issue. I really think we need to start looking at another feed because all during this time, she was losing more and more weight. And the parents were very resistant. And I think part of that was because this feed, the soya feed had always worked. So in the parents' head, that we know what's worked. This has worked before. We're happy with this. We know what we're doing with mm. it. And I think it, I tried to sort of convince them using behavior change techniques. Well, maybe we could try this. If it doesn't work, we could go back to another feed. I tried to influence them by saying, well, I've used this feed in the past. I know that this works. And it... I think it got to the situation whereby they were so having difficulty in controlling the symptoms that the girl was displaying. I, and I think I must have just caught them on a really bad day when I phoned up and I said, again, it's about the third conversation I'd had with them. Look, I really don't think this is the feed to go. I really want, to, and the feed I wanted to change was um, a high energy peptide based feed. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think mum caved in. And I think what also I found really helped was I'd actually got a stock of it kicking under my desk. And I just kind of jokingly said to mum, I said, look, you'd be doing me a massive favour as well because I've got this box of feed. It's under my <laughs> desk. It's getting in my way. You just take it. I've got it now. You can come and collect it today. Just take it. And you can try it. If it doesn't work, then we can think again. So I did that. And the next day they were on the phone this feed, the vomiting stopped, the diarrhea stopped. Oh, overnight. that's wonderful. It was amazing. And then after that was like, we need more feed. We need, so I, unfortunately, I had a, I had a very kind rep who arranged next day delivery for me and we got her changed onto the feed. So that was, it was quite a difficult case because I felt I knew what was going to work and what was needed, but it took a lot of convincing with the parents. Mm. They felt that they, what they were doing had worked and it had worked previously with the soy feed and, but it wasn't working anymore but they were very resistant to change and it took you know, a lot of discussion and persuasion and in trying to influence their perceived decision making and how to change that yeah no that's a fantastic example i'm intrigued have you ever had then parents or carers who won't change the feed and absolutely adamant that they'll stick with the one that they want. Yes, I have had that, but not to the detriment of the child. I think for all any parents who needed to change the feed because the child wasn't tolerating it, they've always changed. Yeah. But I have had some parents who have said, I'm not changing my feed for anything because this one's working and I'm just sticking with it. In which case, that's fine. But I think most parents if the child isn't tolerating are tend to be amenable as long as you sit down and discuss with them what the other alternatives are. This one just took a little of bit course. longer. But I didn't give up. And I think that was the other thing. I kept phoning in, kept checking in with them. How are things now? Have things improved? I have got other options. We can discuss this. But I think what really helped was the fact that I had it there and then and I could yeah. give it to them that day and say, look, there you go. Try it tonight. If it doesn't work, I've got other options and they had nothing to lose at that point I think yeah well we're coming to the end of our conversation Jackie it's been really insightful so thank you for that and at the end of each podcast I like to ask guests to leave their main takeaway points so what would your key messages to other healthcare professionals 
who are working within this area be? I think what's really important to me is getting to know your patient and the family and always taking the parents' considerations into thought and discussion when discussing mm. street regimes. Too many times I have gone up to a ward and gone to reviewing a patient and the family have said to me in the past, oh, we didn't know there was a dietitian looking after us on this ward or we, oh, I didn't know there was the name of the, I don't know the, my name of my dietitian. And I think as I'm always really disappointed when I hear that because they should know who they're discussing. They should know that there's someone looking after them. So I always try and make a point of they've got my contact details, my name, they know who I am. They can contact me at any point if there's any concerns or worries. I also like to make sure that I've discussed the feed regime that is going to best suit that family with regard to the sort of timing of it, the volumes, the actual feed regime itself, and that they're happy with the feed that uh, we've been given. And that they also know that we... That isn't a, the feed for life. That will change. That we can look as things, things develop, situation changes. Then there are other options out there. They shouldn't continue to struggle. That we can yeah. make alterations to that. So I think those would be my take-home points: is that get to know your family, make sure that they are involved in any discussions about feeds, and that things can change and will change and develop. And there's always new products coming out in the market and they don't have to continue to struggle if there is an issue with the child's tolerating the feed. Yeah. And what I really loved is that idea that you gave of talking or asking the parent, well, what is your routine? Talk me through exactly that from the yeah. point time at which the child wakes up. And then you as a dietitian working with that. I love that whole idea. No, those are fantastic tips. Thank you very much. And in terms of resources or tools that our listeners could go to? Do you have any of those that you would like to signpost listeners to? I think if any of the manufacturing companies have got uh, case studies on their websites or you can be pointed to case studies by your local rep, I think those are really good because I think having case studies, particularly maybe if you're a new dietitian and you haven't got much experience there, is showing parents that there's a case study here, very similar to your child, the situation. This is what was changed. And this is the result that's happened. Or going out and speaking to other dietitians and asking them, what's your experience of this? What feed did you use? What happened? Did it help? And I think getting that, I draw on my experience all the time. I'll say, well, I've used this feed before. This is where the issue was. We used it because of this. And this is a result that improved. And I think that's what parents want to hear. They want real life experiences to know and I've had parents who've come to me and said oh I've read up about on this feed on there somewhere what do you think of this and it might not be appropriate and you think okay this is appropriate but anyway we'll have a chat with it anyway and we chat about it and then after the conversation they'll come around saying I don't think this is the right feed for my child I think well no I I don't either but it was a really good discussion to have and not to brush parents aside and they've got equal thoughts and ideas about what they think is best for their child as well. And I think that's really important to take that into consideration. No, that's a really good tip. And also perhaps to be involved in a specialist group, like yes. what the VDA offers is very valuable absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Because you um, can share absolutely. learning. Definitely, definitely. Yes, definitely. That's been wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, Jackie. And it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Medical Nutrition. If you enjoyed the podcast and found the content useful, please share it with your colleagues and consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. For more information on this topic or to share your feedback, please visit the Nestle Health Science N Plus Hub or click on the link in the show notes.